Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And I want to apologize right off the bat for missing last week and not really communicating about it. I've just been very overwhelmed on the home front. Haven't had much time to sleep, let alone do anything else. Those kind of memes of the sleep-deprived parents are very true. But this week has been a lot better, so I'm able to pick up, move on, and keep moving forward. And one of the things I am going to do specifically with the show moving forward is really try and keep the length in that half an hour to 40 minute ballpark, mainly because not only I think that's just more attractive from a viewer perspective, but it's just easier for me to produce. It's not so much when I'm actually recording. It's more like when I'm sitting down to edit the show and it's a half an hour show versus an hour show. That's when you really feel it. But over the last two weeks, honestly, there hasn't been a whole lot I've wanted to talk about or felt hugely compelled to talk about anyway. So not missing a lot. And today, and even today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on news and current events because I don't think there's anything that I really want to talk about or think has a lot of importance right now. But today, what I want to do is start a two-part episode series and outlining my own personal political beliefs a little bit better and a little bit clearer, and I've been roasting a lot of people for what they have to believe, and what they say, and what they think, and I think it's a little bit time that I put some of my own cards on the table, and of course, once you start putting your own cards on the table, that definitely leads to people opening yourself up to being roasted, and people tearing you down, tearing you down for what you believe, but it's part of the game in any case, and personally, nothing that, nothing pisses me off more is when you're dealing with someone or listening to someone who clearly has a bias and clearly has a perspective, but just won't admit it. <laughs> they just are trying to pretend that they're unbiased or pretending that they have a perspective that they don't have. God, that drives drives me nuts. And uh, people who don't really outline their own politics tend to fall into that category. So don't want to do that. So just what the hell do I believe anyway? Well, if it wasn't quite obvious from... A lot of the previous conversations and previous talks on the show, I am a radical socialist. That's probably one of the labels I would identify most comfortably with. And now we see we have a, an old, this is a very old picture here, the pyramid of capitalism, but it's one of my personal things that I always associate with radical socialism. So it's all well and good to say, well, you're a radical socialist. What does, what does that even mean? Well, let's dive in a little bit deeper and I'll talk a little even enough because I definitely fall into the revolutionary camp. I want and strive for a revolution in society to upend and reorganize institutions in a way that are much more beneficial to the welfare of the working class. And for my own political lens, that is maybe my, my number one lens of how I view politics is, is this going to benefit the working class more broadly, or is this going to harm them more broadly? Probably my ultimate decider in how I dictate my own personal political philosophy. And today, this episode specifically, I really want to talk less about the nitty-gritty, nitty-gritty about the political ideological trappings and that kind of stuff, which I do believe is important. But I think specifically on a left-leaning perspective, we tend to get bogged down in that kind of academic discourse and that academic malaise, if you will. 
particularly, and this is coming from, I've been in a lot of very deep left wing circles in my life. And this is something that is very endemic to particularly far left circles is this academic debate where they get atrophied in debates over small minute details and the exact definitions of particular terms. These are far less important to me than actual tangible results. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the trappings of ideology per se, but I want to talk about specifically in this episode, what I think a revolution in the 21st century would look like and how exactly we would achieve it. Because I do draw a lot of inspiration from past socialists and past left-leaning thinkers, honestly, the most inspiration I draw from is from pre-socialist thinkers. I, at this point in my life, I take almost none of my ideology from post-Soviet socialism and communism thinking. It's almost all pre-Soviet revolution. And that, to me, I think is where the real kind of revival for socialist thinking lies, is in these older socialist writings and philosophies and thinkers, because there's so much energy and creativity from that time. While it is certainly important to draw inspiration from those past thinkers and philosophers, it's important not to live too much in the past and not to pretend like everything in the past society is exactly as our society is now. That is definitely another trap I think some left-leaning people can fall into is taking like the kind of industrial language of the working class and placing it onto a 21st century workforce. The 21st century working class is no longer working in the factory, right? They're toiling away at the fucking outlet mall. They're toiling away behind the fast food counter. The 21st century proletariat isn't the industrial factory laborer. It's the... I think at least, the crushed service worker. Let's not live in the past and let's not pretend the past is the present, but there are plenty of inspirational things we can draw from it. Okay, I got off on a tangent there, but we'll start with that plank, basic plank that I strive for a revolution which will end up benefiting the welfare of the working class. Okay, let's move on to the next point, which I want to talk about is how exactly would we achieve that revolution now and I was having a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about this, and we're going to move into some of these themes in this next point here. But we're talking about how there's so much we need to get done in society, but there are so many vested interests that block us at every turn. And in this case, I think that that atrophy and this inability to break through and dismantle vested interests will actually be one of the key ingredients and the key factors in the downfall of at least the capitalist system as we understand it. All right, so let us start our discourse here with this article, which I read that really illustrate a lot of things that I want to say and is a great framing tool for what we're going to talk about today. American worker productivity is declining at the fastest rate in 75 years, and it could see CEOs go to war with work from home. This is from Fortune magazine. And let us delve into some of the details here. I'm not going to read this whole article for you guys. Just some of the important points. It's been a rough three years. The globe effectively shut down. 
as a once-in-a-century pandemic claimed millions of lives. While on the business front, the U.S. saw a mass way-off wave incomparable in modern history. Working our way back to a relative baseline has come with hiccups like the huge shift to remote work and then a semi-return to normal. As a mark of what a long journey it's been, the World Health Organization just today, I just want to mark when this came out, May 5th, so six days ago, can you believe that? Just today declared that COVID is no longer an emergency. So only six days ago as of recording, has the World Health Organization finally declared that COVID is no longer an emergency. In any case, the point here being is that pandemic shook things up. Returning to normal has not been easy. And one of the big sticking points is work from home. So one of the big factors, as I was saying, when it came to the COVID period was a shift to remote work. And a lot of people really enjoyed remote work because it came with a huge number of benefits. People enjoy doing things in their comfortable homes much more than they enjoy getting up, going to the office, dealing with all the bullshit <laughs> that comes with going there and being there and doing the whole socialization, song and dance, when they can easily do the same work from home. I personally have not been a part of the work from home revolution. However, my wife has, and it has definitely improved her life. There's no question about that. But there's another bigger reason why people are hugely in favor of remote work and just i'm not going to read this article because the headline just really says it all how working from home gave canadians a big pay raise and why nobody wants to give it up and obviously i'm not going to assume it's just canadians it's americans it's british folk it's french it's german it's anywhere pretty much that had a shift to remote work and the reason why this is a huge pay raise for most canadians and other people is because you're not spending money on gas. Maybe you don't even need a vehicle to begin with, so you don't have to spend money on buying a vehicle and or car payments, no insurance. And then, of course, there is the fact that when you go downtown, where maybe you're working, you have to pay for parking. If you're not paying for parking, you're going to have to pay for public transportation. If you're not paying for public transportation... You know, you're going to have to carpool or pay an Uber or something, and that's just going to be even more expensive. And here in Edmonton, parking downtown for a monthly pass, it's not that much. Here in Calgary, it's 600 bucks a month or something like that. But I can imagine that in a place like Vancouver or Seattle or L.A. or Washington, D.C. or New York, got to pay through the nose for parking. In any case, there's not only that. There is the whole, when you go downtown and you're out for your lunch break, there is a huge temptation to, rather than eat your leftovers or whatever, to go to the fancy new bakery that opened up in your building and drop $15 on a croissant and a latte or something like that. Obviously, when you're at home, you just have the added benefit of, you can just cook something up quickly. You don't have to worry about heating it up in the microwave or whatever. You whip some up at home. And you're laughing. But the point here being is that for the overwhelming majority of people who were able to move to remote work, this has been a huge improvement in their lives. And as the headline says here, nobody's ready to give it up. Nobody wants to give it up. But there are two factors, and we're going to jump back to our article here, which will explain why employers and CEOs are desperate 
to crush it and potentially the government in a larger sense. And the reason why CEOs and employers are so desperate to crush it is a productivity fall. And there's nothing that a capitalist can pour more than a productivity fall. Doesn't matter if people are happy. Doesn't matter if people are working better. Doesn't matter if mental health is improving. The fact that productivity is falling, that is it. Gotta crush this whole thing. Gotta move back to the way it was because you must sacrifice everything at the altar of productivity. So let us break down this a little bit more. U.S. productivity has plunged 2.7% in the first quarter of this year compared to last year. That means people are working longer hours and are barely putting out more products. That's because they aren't as productive as they used to be. When you have an environment in which output is outpacing labor growth, it's an environment of stronger productivity, explained they have some kind of economics expert that they're interviewing for this article. He explains to Fortune, when you have the opposite, when output growth is sluggish, but labor growth is strong, you have a weak productivity environment. A rebound in productivity is key to solving many of the current issues, Daco said, that would lift supply and therefore reduce inflationary measures. I hope you guys understand what he's really saying here. He is saying here that in order for inflation to go down, People must pay less and they must work longer hours and they must produce more or else bad things will happen. Inflation will go up. Again, again, just reiterating the point that everything must be sacrificed at the altar of productivity. Daco acknowledged hearing from clients that remote work could be making employees work less hard. From our clients across sectors, we hear similar stories of reduced productivity because of a new work environment, Daco says. He acknowledged the imperfect hybrid agreements could also be a plausible cause of the productivity plummet. CEOs such as JP Morgan's Jamie Diamond and Salesforce's Mac Benoff have argued that in-person workers are simply doing more work better than their remote colleagues. Diamond says long-term remote work just doesn't work for most employees. While Benoff says that workers in the office consistently perform better. Both the bank and tech giant have waffled on return to office mandates, but both have yielded on a hybrid plan, at least for now. And here's where we're talking about vested interest, right? We have a vested interest in the way people believe things are done. They have a vested interest in believing that this is the most efficient and productive way to do this, and they will not move on this. But there's an even deeper thing, and this isn't reflected in the article here, but I want to take some time to talk about it now, that when we talk about desperate interests, there is a, when we talk about vested interests, I say desperate interests, when we talk about vested interests, there is one huge one in this whole equation that we mentioned briefly, but didn't touch on it, we're going to touch on now, which is commercial real estate, that these offices, that all these real <laughs> that all these real estate companies have leases on these downtown offices for however ridiculous sums of money. If all of a sudden offices are moving towards a more remote work plan, that means, oh no, we don't need as many offices. The demand for this office space craters, our real estate company value craters. And all of a sudden, because of remote work, we're exponentially less valuable than we were five years ago. And the same goes for 
the businesses like the cafes that rely on the people who go to the office to buy their $15 croissants and whatever, all of these businesses in turn are either going to move to other places. For example, one of the things that we're seeing here is that it's not like that these food-based businesses are necessarily going away, that they're moving into other places. They're moving into more suburban areas. Some places like here in Edmonton, we have places which like almost like residential ghost kitchens almost. It's like a ghost kitchen house where the person will like prepare the meal for you and then like they it gets delivered to your house type of thing. So people are adapting, people are moving into different ways. But for the people who have the office space downtown and like I said, those real estate people who are relying on the leases, the real estate companies that are relying on those leases, relying on that income, they are going to be totally screwed. Unfortunately for us, those people, excuse me, those companies make a crap ton of money they have a lot of power and in the process of trying to move to a more remote to work fashion, they're going to do absolutely everything they can to gum up the works, including if they could potentially lobbying government entities to crush work from home movements. Continuing on here. They mentioned that there might be some other factors. For example, over the past 18 months, there has been a lot more job turnover, which is true. A lot more people have exited their jobs, tried to find new jobs, found other new jobs. You, you understand what I mean? There's just been a lot of movement in the labor market, quote unquote, over the past two years. And it has been very difficult to adjust to it. And over time, I think people will uh, adjust to it. But as this article mentions, what happens uh, during a time like this is that you spend way more money on training people up, but then if they leave in only 18 months, you haven't really seen the, from an employer's perspective, the benefits of investing the time and energy and effort into training them up and becoming a productive employee, but they just leave before that point happens for you. So that is an issue for employers. And as we go further, they talk about trust factor. One of the issues is that both employees and employers don't trust each other. Employees don't trust employers. They think that they're replaceable, that they don't have their best interests at heart, which is 100% true. Employers think that employees just want to suck every penny out of them, that they're unreliable, that they'll leave at the drop of a hat. But what the point here is that nobody trusts each other. And because of that, you know, that's going to hurt productivity. It hurts any relationship it is a lack of trust. If people are always looking over each other's back, second guessing what they're saying, things aren't going to get done. I trust. Here, here comes a cheesy quote you guys can put on your fucking refrigerators that I just pulled out of my ass. Trust is the infrastructure of communication. And what I mean here is that if you don't have trust, the communication can't go anywhere because people don't believe what you're saying. They don't want to hear you. They just they just disregard what you're saying. They don't even listen to you in the first place. It's like not having infrastructure, not having roads. Your goods can't get from point A to point B if they don't have roads. Lots of random tangents and anecdotes today. But when it comes to another analogy like that, I think corruption or a lack of corruption is the good infrastructure for government, right? If there's too much corruption, it's like having no roads, right? Your government policy can't get from point A to point B. It doesn't matter if you have the most on-point popular person who genuinely cares about human beings. 
if they have a corrupt government, all of their policy is never going to get enacted because the corruption will ensure that it never gets there. So long story short, it's a bad situation. But how does this play into our revolutionary ideas? Well, back into our theme that we're living in a fundamentally different time. Back in the era of the old Russian Revolution, they were living in a time when society, I would argue, needed less input and less buy-in from them because it was less complicated. There were less moving parts. There were less people that needed to be doing various things. And most importantly of all, and for our conversations, less vested interests than there are today. So in order to enact a revolution, the people of their time had to physically march on the centers of power, on the centers of government, and protest and revolt and ultimately overthrow them. For us here in the 21st century, I firmly believe that will not be necessary at all for a revolution. And in fact, not only is it just not possible in our given society, something like that would probably almost be counterintuitive in the sense that it could be spun as people gather together for trying to enact mass violence or something like that. No, today we do not need to gather together and march on the Kremlin. And the reason for that being is because the society we live in today, over 100 years later, requires much more buy-in from us personally than the society of Russia in 1917, or of course any other country of that time period than Britain or France or America of 1917. And there's a couple reasons why our current society requires more of a buy-in and more of an effort from us to keep moving. Not only is it more complicated as alluded to before, there's more moving parts, there's more jobs to be done, there's more things we need to take care of, there's more people, there's more infrastructure that needs to be maintained. But even on almost a more ideological level, we need to have that same buy-in because as we go back to our article here, it's all about the productivity in our current society. And the question is what happens when that productivity starts to decline? Well, there's going to be a lot of things that the CEOs are going to try and do. They're going to try some carrot and stick based methods. They're going to try a bunch of different things, but ultimately, even if they are able to somehow crush work from home, which I don't think will be possible because it's just the way most people want it. It's the way things are going. And it's just, it's, it's so much better than going to the office, at least in my opinion. And I, I think in the opinion of the vast majority of people out there. So while they may be able to crush work from home, what is going to happen, especially as we move into the future is that all important productivity is going to start to decline, not out of a work from home thing or anything like that. It's going to start to decline because one of the key things we talk a lot about in the show is declining demographics. We have more boomers moving into retirement. We have less young people replacing them. That means that effectively you're going to have a less productive society. No matter what you do, there are, there are some, I guess, rays of hope, but I don't think that they will be enough to overtake the decline in demographics. Obviously, we're talking about automation, robotics, AI, 
all of these things are actually coming together at a time when they are extremely important and probably very important for the pushing forward of human understanding and human advancement. But I don't think that they're going to be able to fill the productivity gap, which will be left by the fact that there isn't going to be as many people to do various skilled labor positions. So what does all of this lead towards? Well, all of this leads towards, I believe, is what I call the 21st century revolution. It's going to be what I like to call, I haven't really come up with a pithy term for it, the silent revolution, the quiet revolution, the slackers revolution, something along those lines. But basically, we are getting to the point where we can affect change in the system, change in society, just by refusing to interact with it anymore. And that is where a lot of people are naturally getting to. <laughs> we talked about in our episode about demographics, about why people aren't having kids. And we had, we talked about the Korean wig towels, I guess you could say, the Korean women they're going, that are going their own way. We talked a little bit about the kind of movement that doesn't get a lot of play anymore. It's involved in other movements now. The MGTOW movement, men going their own way. In some ways, like these two movements are in many ways the most revolutionary things that you can do which is refusing to engage with society at large. Obviously, I disagree with particularly when it comes to the MGTOW guys, the very obvious and blatant misogynistic rhetoric, which tends to follow their communities. You know, I, I'm in a position in my life where I talk to a lot of, I, I interact with a lot of guys, talk to a lot of guys, a lot of guys being dudes, and there are a lot of guys being dudes out there that are, that are just being dudes. They'll say, listen, I'm just out here doing my own thing. I'm not really interested in dating or pursuing a relationship or having a family or having a kid or anything like that. I just want to do my own thing. And then in the same breath, they'll tell me like, but I know those MGTOW guys, those Red Pill guys or whatever, they're fucking nuts. I'm not with those guys type of thing. And I know for those guys, if they found the right woman, if the right woman came along in their lives, they would absolutely be willing to settle down with them and start a family with them in a heartbeat. The thing is, that's just not what those guys have on their priority list. It's just not what they're prioritizing right now. But the thing is, that doesn't mean that they are just eschewing it altogether. That if it happens to happen, they're not going to be like, oh no, oh my God, oh, I can't get married, can't have kids, this is terrifying. No, it's not. it's not like that. They just have to find the right person. But like, again, we talked about in one of our earlier episodes, they're not forcing it. They're not forcing it in their lives. They are just doing their own thing. And if it happens, it happens. And I honestly think that that is a very healthy attitude. But obviously it's in terms of disengaging from society, there's more than just disengaging from relationships and social aspects. There's disengaging from employment aspects. And we had the term quiet quitting, which was very popular a couple of years ago. I was a very a strong proponent of quiet quitting, which is basically just doing the absolute bare minimum at your place of employment to try and not get fired. Because, like I said, the, the system, the productivity God demands more and more and more, but we're just getting to a point where not only is there less to give, but people are willing to give less. So we're reaching a rock and a hard place where these guys like Jeremy Diamond are wondering, like, what are we going to do? These people don't want to come into work. 
We're worried about productivity. How are we going to maintain growth? How are we going to maintain growth in 10 years? Things, Jeremy, you're not. And people, especially in his position, have not come to accept that fact yet. And I don't think they ever will accept that fact. And they will fight it tooth and nail to their dying breath to the point where we talk about if corporate power exceeds government power, which I think you can make an argument may have already happened. Jeremy Diamond can use his outsized wealth and influence to basically try and force people into a bum deal to force people to working in a society which is going to demand more from them while giving them less. And that is where I think the tipping point of the quiet revolution happens. When more and more people start to disengage from society, they start to work less, they start to give less, they start to just unplug for lack of a better term. I hate that term. I think it's cringing, but unplug from work, unplug from being a wage slave type of thing and just do their own thing. The more that happens, the less people are willing to bleed, the more desperate the people at the top are going to be, are going to become to ensure that their God productivity is not left in the dust. So there has to come a snapping point where these people cannot demand more from the every everyday worker because there's nothing left to give. And if they try and demand more, that's the breaking point. That is when you have the revolution. That is at the point when we have a capitalist society which has recognized that forever growth is no longer an achievable goal and has to transform into something else. And while obviously I hope whatever this revolution ends up being, and I will fight for it to be pushed in a way which benefits human welfare, which benefits the welfare of the working class, that is certainly not guaranteed. So this is something that I think is going to happen just by looking at the trends and forces and where we're moving. And this is probably going to happen at the point where there's a lot of boomers in retirement and just not enough people to really replace them. That is the point I think that they're going to end up with a lot of these tipping points coming into fruition. But my hope that once whatever we see this changing point in society, I just call it the revolution for lack of a better term, because it is going to replace what we have now, whether we like it or not. I hope that when this happens, we can force a more socialistic system into existence. But like I said before, that's not guaranteed. It's not necessarily more guaranteed, but it's certainly plausible that you end up moving in a more right-wing direction and you have a more fascistic authoritarian takeover, or you just have <laughs> somehow the status quo continues to shamble on in some sort of zombie format for another however many years. That is also possible, but I, I think that that's pretty unlikely. And honestly, one of the points of doing the show is that I felt like there was a lack of alternate political voices out there trying to push different political ideas into the universe. Right now, I felt like there were really two main factions. There was the defend the ever-crumbling status quo, and then there was the outright right-wing populist authoritarianism faction. And both these two factions sucked. And both these two factions sucked big time. I came in here thinking, like, I want to talk about and purport for a more left-wing alternative to both of these. I didn't feel like there was anybody else 
out there really talking about it in a way that I resonated with. If, if no one else is doing it, I'm going to do it myself type of thing. So that was part of the inspiration here is that I wanted to have a more left-wing alternative to the status quo. Because the point, like I said here, is that I think the status quo is crumbling and we need to start thinking about what's going to replace it now rather than later. And the last thing I do want to say on what is coming, I think I said it before, and I, it, it does bear reiterating because people have been like, oh, so you think like the world's going to end? No, I don't think the world is going to end. I do think that things are going to get worse before they get better. And there is going to be a time when we are going through those worst times, when we nostalgically think about those better times and wish that they were still here. But that being said, I do think that not everything is hopeless by any stretch of the imagination. And that once we push through the bad times, we will get to better times on the other end. But one of the things and one of the main things that the CEOs and the employers will do to force people back into working is essentially hold the threat of homelessness above people. And this is how they've gotten people to work pretty much since the, the capitalist system has come into existence as we understand it is hold that threat of homelessness above them that if you don't work effectively you're going to go homeless and i think that one of the big things for us as socialists we should be doing is finding a way to alleviate that is to try and find a way to counteract that because as long as that threat exists for the majority of people it's going to be very difficult to force them into thinking of alternatives However, I do have a proposed solution to this, and uh, this is what is going to happen and what we're going to talk about in the next episode as I try and outline more of my political ideas in a more coherent manner because we have gone over the half an hour mark that I wanted to, and like I said, I'm trying to keep these episodes shorter. So I do want to have a feel-good story because it's been a while since we've had one, so we're going to end on a high note and we will go from there. So I want to end our feel-good story on something that has been rumbling for a while, but it has come back into the fore. I want to end on an AI story because, as many of you guys know, I'm a big proponent of AI. I have been playing around with AI a lot. I've been playing around a lot with the... I don't know if you've been following some of the, the developments, but there's an iteration of the chat GBT bot called AutoGBT, which essentially will spawn multiple agents and automate tasks for you. And that's what I've been playing around with a lot in my spare time, trying to create the best and most efficient versions of that to mixed success right now. It's, it's, harder, than, it's harder than you think to train these AIs. They don't exactly always think one-to-one -one in terms of us humans. You have to sometimes think like an AI to really be able to communicate with it or try and break things down on its level to try and get it to do what you want it to do. Regardless, though, let's jump into this here article. So AI now have locked the ability to read people's minds. And they have, of course, the obligatory minority report references. But so back in the early days of AI, before the likes of GBT, mid-journey burst into our lives, some concerned experts proposed a few rules to steer the emerging technology in the right direction and to prevent it from wiping out mankind. One of those rules was to avoid letting AI know how humans think. That way, experts suggested they couldn't use our own programming against us or understand our weakest points. Okay, so on and so forth. In any case, 
Two days ago, on May 1st, researchers announced the successful creation of an AI-powered decoder that's able to translate brain activity into a continuous stream of understandable language. As a result, users are able to non-intrusively read another human being's thoughts for the first time. Published in Natural Neuroscience, research, the research paper explains that the experiment's participants first lay in a scanner and listen to narrative podcasts for 60 hours. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I don't know. I, that caught me off guard. Just like sitting in there, listen to a podcast for 16 hours. Does not sound like a lot of fun. In any case, while their brains were recorded using an MRI machine. The decoder was then trained to match their brain's responses to the meaning of the narrative with the help of a GBT LLM large language model. Some of the participants were then scanned while they were still silently imagined telling one of five minute stories based off nothing more than their brain activity. The decoder was able to convert these stories into text with considerable accuracy in quotation marks, capturing the gist of the stories they were telling, as well as occasionally picking up exact phrases. It was also able to describe the content of silent videos it watched in the scanner. Again, based nothing off of more, based nothing off of mere brain activity. So it's not perfect. Of course, it has some issues. But to me, this is very, very cool because this is just, again, the infancy of a lot of this technology. I'm not going to finish reading out because it reiterates a lot of the same things. But people have been doing this. I remember saying the first iteration I saw of this was actually a study from Japan where they did this to somebody's brain. But, and I think what they did actually was they hooked it up to an AI image uh, generator and it would actually create images of, of what they were thinking or try to create images of what they were thinking, which is another way that these LLMs can be used in conjunction with the human brain. And I think a lot of this stuff is very cool because what is going to happen is the AI is reading your brain waves and then translating that into tangible data that other people, you and me, can interact with and understand with. And that to me is hugely exciting because what I see in the future is, is genuine almost, maybe not being able to like invasively go into somebody's mind, but for example, like I can put maybe like a note or something here and it's connected to my smartphone. And when I want to text my wife or something like that, instead of actually having to pick up my phone and type it in, I can just think, and this node will pick up my brain activity and detect that, hey, I want to write a text, start writing a text, and then I can just think the text into my phone and then send it to my wife without ever actually having to pick up the phone and actually type it in. That, I think, is very real, very real in the next 10 years type of real, maybe even sooner, because a lot of what I've seen specifically with these AI image generation creators is that the rate that they have improved on themselves has been exponential, right? You look at, because we're close to, if not just over a year of a lot of these AI art generators becoming available to the mainstream. And you compare those AI generators when they first came out to what they have now, and it's like night and day. And thinking at what they're going to look like two years from now, three years from now, stuff like this, we're just in its infancy and it's already getting things pretty close. Give it a little bit more time, it's going to be almost almost exactly accurate, in my opinion. Anyway, there's some food for thought for you guys. AI is now having the ability to read our brainwaves 
And before you know it, we'll probably be able to talk to each other, at least communicate to each other just through thoughts. It won't exactly be like thought to thought communication. It'll probably be an intermediary, like I said, like text, like thought to text type of thing. But still, that that's coming. And with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. Sorry about the delay again. What again, I'm really hoping to do is eliminate delays as much as possible by just shortening the shows to a shorter half an hour to 40 minute mark. And hopefully I'll be able to do that this week. Maybe a little bit faster, maybe a little more truncated than usual. I didn't get to bring all the points that I wanted to, but still, it's better to have the show out there than not, at least in my opinion. So with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been Comrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.